So uh, we'll vote again this year to do Christmas songs all year round, right? So, in July. Grace and peace to you from God the Father, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. And once again, Merry Christmas. This is crowd participation time. Yes, right then. Just something about Christmas morning. I don't know about you guys. But for the past month now, uh, we've been talking about what I call the words of Advent. The words that God gives us as, um, as a reassurance of who he is and how he works in our lives. Um, some of those words that we talked about, uh, we talked about the joy of the Lord is in Nehemiah 8.10, where it says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Um, and so that joy um, is not the same as happiness, right? That's not the same kind of word we're looking for here. Um, joy means um, protection, means strength, means that strong tower. So the joy of the Lord is our strength, Nehemiah 8.10. And so we also talked about um, the peace of the Lord, that, word, that Hebrew word shalom, uh, which means to be made complete. Um, and the reason we talk about words like that, the reason we get together on mornings like this to talk about these things is because sometimes, you know, um, we don't always feel all that joyful out in the world. Well, when we understand that the word joy, God means that I'm going to strengthen you. That's what the word joy means, is I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to equip you to go out in the world when things don't seem so joyful. In shalom, God's peace, sometimes uh, things don't seem all that peaceful. So there's a disconnect to what we talk about and what we experience here in this um, what I call kind of the laboratory, the sterile environment that we have here. Then we go out into the world and things don't seem so peaceful. Things don't seem so joyful. But when we start to understand those words a little bit better, we start to get a grasp of them a little bit more, a deeper meaning, deeper understanding that joy means strength, means that strong tower. And, and shalom means to make you complete. Peace means to make you complete. What we're learning is that God is equipping us to go out into the world. So then there's not a disconnect here. Things actually start fitting together. God's saying, I understand that it's not always peaceful out there. That his, God's peace doesn't mean an absence of conflict. It means how do we deal with that conflict? How do we overcome that conflict? Right? And how does that joy, you know, we only seem so joyful. Well, how do we persevere even through that? So that's what we talk about. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's, I know that's maybe not the Shepherds and Christmas uh, series or Christmas uh, messages that you usually hear. But, but there's this, like I said a minute ago, there's something about Christmas morning and, and, and combining all those things. Um, into what God has in store for us, what God means for us. And so then it, it raises the question, um, what is Christmas all about? What does Christmas mean? I think <clears throat> if we talk to everybody in here, excuse me, <clears throat> if we talk to everybody in here, like I said, in this sterile environment with a pastor asking you with a microphone in front of you, you've had, you've had one answer, you would have one answer. But if some dude, uh, newspaper reporter was asking you the same question with a microphone, while you were at Walmart, and say so you ask, what, is, what does Christmas mean? And when you're standing shopping at Walmart, it would mean something completely different. Or if, um, you know, you're at the grocery store, it would mean something completely different. In different environments, we have different ideas of what, what Christmas really means. Um, and sometimes, you know, they're, they're, they're very heartwarming things, and not necessarily bad things. I'm not saying that at all. Because sometimes people will say Christmas means family. Okay, because we all get together uh, at Christmas time, we get our family together. Well, what, is, what, what does that mean then? to somebody who's lost a loved one recently and their family isn't complete anymore? Uh, or what does that mean to somebody who doesn't really have an extended family around them? What, how does that work in then? Or if Christmas means um, shopping malls, trees, um, blinking lights, all that kind of stuff, then what does Christmas mean to a family who lives in, in Ghana maybe where there is no electricity you know, for lights, let alone no shopping malls? And what, is, what does that mean? Maybe they've never even seen a Christmas tree. Maybe Christmas means giving and receiving. Um, then, okay, cool, what does Christmas mean to that single mom who has two or three kids, can barely make rent, can barely put, put you know, food on the table, working two jobs? 
Um, then what is that, how does that fit in? How does that work? If Christmas means, you know, snowfalls, it's just not Christmas unless there's snow. Oh, you know, there's people that move to Arizona to avoid that snowfall. So what is, how does all that work together? So, and if Christmas is meaning, you know, reading a certain version of, of our Bible, no, what if we don't do that? But like I said, don't misunderstand that family, trees, lights, gifts, snow, they're all good things, you know, and that can be edifying and beneficial, but, but that's not really what Christmas means, not Christmas is all about. You know, and even as, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we might uh, go for the uh, thing and might even have a little board in your house, and sometimes we have it on our signs out front that says, keep Christ in Christmas. But, but do we really do that? You know, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this um, over the last few years about, you know, how do we bring, uh, not only keep Christ in Christmas, how do we make sure that he is Christmas, not just a part of it? You know, I've told you before maybe that um, I was very fortunate when I was in the military that I got to travel around and go to different countries and spend some extended time there. I went to India on several occasions, and I spent two, three, sometimes six weeks there at a time. Got to uh, tour the city or tour the country and see the ins and outs of a lot of it. Um, so I'm, I'm prefacing this because I want to show you a beautiful picture here of a place that uh, I got to visit a couple of times. This, of course, is Taj Mahal, right? So you may or may not know it, but the, the Taj Mahal was commissioned by a guy named um, Shah Jahan, and it was for uh, commissioned for his wife in, in memory of his wife. Um, who they said were inseparable from the time that they were married. She died in childbirth in 1631, I think it was, um, and he was devastated. And he was trying to figure out a way to, um, you know, really honor her for all time is what he was looking for. So they started building this, the Taj Mahal. And what they did, it was kind of crazy, but um, they had her coffin, now this is a mausoleum basically, so they had her coffin in the middle, and then they built the building around her. So they literally built her into the building. The project took some 17 years um, in, through the construction. He was obsessed, completely obsessed with the building of that, uh, of the actual construction of that building. And so then, okay, so now um, 17 years later, fast forward, it's about done. And they're doing kind of a final walkthrough um, of the building. And he's there with the main um, architect, builder, and designer, all this kind of stuff. And uh, they're walking through, and he's, he's approving everything, finally. I mean, they took a lot of it apart, put it back together, took a lot of it apart, put it back together. It took a long time for them to get it the way he wanted it and for him to be happy with it. Going on this final walkthrough, and he kind of trips over this box that the construction workers have left in the middle of the floor. He's like, you know, you guys are really sloppy. Get this box out of here and we'll be done. Well, it turned out that that box was actually his wife's coffin. He forgot the, the whole message. He forgot the whole idea of what he was going for here and said, you know, the, the main goal now is, 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 uh, is obsolete because I've thought about something else. I think that's how we treat Christmas. We have Christ in our minds, sort of, when we go into it. But we do so many other things and we get so busy going in different places that, uh, that we forget the main point. We forget the focus and we're ready to throw that part out because it maybe is getting in our way a little bit at times. I'm wondering if that same thing happens. In my lifetime even, I've seen a uh, shift from, uh, from faith to more to family. Um, more of a focus on gifts than the focus on God. Um, certainly more of a focus on tradition more than theology is what I would say. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, it's not Christmas unless, and how many times has that unless been unless we glorify Christ and we have Jesus and we have Christ in everything we think, do, and say? That's just not part of our DNA. It's part, not part of our thinking anyway. It's part of our DNA, but not part of how we understand. And, that, and it's understandable. 
You know, even the people in Jesus' times were looking for other things, right? They were looking to be um, saved from Roman oppression as well as other things. Um, but I ask, what are, as Americans, what are we looking to be saved from? You know, what are we, uh, the only thing we need to be saved from, really, and you might not, this might sound crazy to you, but the thing we need to be saved from is our wealth, our, our affluence in the world, our status in the world. Because by world standards, man, you are living in the lap of luxury. Now, the first chapter of John, I'm going to get back to Christmas here in a second. Uh, the first chapter of John really helps us put things in perspective, really talks about who Christ is, how, how Christ works in the world, and how um, he is the greatest Christmas gift um, ever. Now, okay, so um, Book of John, real quick. Um, and that's one of the places I, when I hand people a Bible, maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time again, I ask them to take a look at the Book of John. Um, maybe Ephesians also, but the book of John really starts to lay things out in, in terms uh, through God's eyes. Because when we look at, um, uh, at the other uh, writers, you know, um, John wasn't concerned with, with the where and when of Christmas. Stay with me. John wasn't concerned with the where and the when of Christmas. He was concerned more about the who and the why of Christmas. John took the reality of the manger um, as a given and sought out to give us more of, uh, of revelation or of unveiling of what the manger was all about. When you, care him, when you compare him to um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, you'll see that um, John not, not, wasn't necessarily the broadest writer, but he was definitely the deepest. Um, he writes on a, a different level. Um, you know, we don't, like I said, we don't read anything in John's gospel about, about the birth of Jesus. We don't see angels. We don't see the shepherds. We don't see uh, the manger. We don't, he doesn't even mention Bethlehem, right? That's all just a kind of a given. So um, even further, John doesn't go into that other part of it. Um, he doesn't talk about Jesus' baptism. He doesn't talk about him being tempted um, in, by Satan. Um, not one of Jesus' um, 40 parables, depends on who's counting and how we count them. None, 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 no parables, there's none parables. No parables are in the book of John. In the original language, John used about, they, uh, scholars tell me about 600 words, which is a very small, tight vocabulary. It might sound like a lot, different words. might sound like a lot, but that's a very small vocabulary. Basically, it's on a seventh grade level so that we can understand it, so that we can grasp what he's talking about. But John's words carry a lot of weight with them. And in the first five verses of, of what I read this morning, in those first five verses, um, there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of weight going on. Those five verses um, could easily become... Um, John could have easily written five books for, or one book for each of those verses. Um, there's like 65 words in those five verses in the original language. Um, we could easily turn them into more like 65,000 words because of the weight that they have behind them. And again, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they write and they talk about God's story. They talk about the Bethlehem story. They look at it through the eyes of people. Matthew, Mark, and Luke look at it through the eyes of people. But John is different. John looks at Jesus the king and he looks at it through the eyes of God. He looks at it through the eyes of the creator. He looks at it through the eyes of eternity. Matthew, Mark, and Luke start to look at it as more of a, as that is the beginning. But John says, no, the beginning didn't really have a start. It has been here the whole time. And again, until we start looking at, at Christmas through the eyes of God, through the eyes of God, we're going to be missing the whole point. And it's, it's my prayer here this morning that, Somehow, by the Holy Spirit, we can do that same thing. We can do that. And rather than saying, keep Christ in Christmas, maybe we can say something more like, keep the clutter out of Christmas, right? And stop saying, um, it's not Christmas unless, you know, and like I said, fill in that blank, and it's always different no matter where you are or different places you're standing. But let's go back to God's words um, 
uh, to us um, through what, what John wrote to us. So John 1, 1 uh, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, uh, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, if we fast forward, I'm not going to do it, but if we fast forward uh, to verse 14, we talk about, he talks about that the Word is Jesus, right? So we, ha we have that from the beginning. So here we are, like I said, just John makes that very clear so there's no confusion. So in the beginning was the Word. Now, um, this phrase, in the beginning was the Word, this phrase doesn't, uh, doesn't talk about a beginning. It doesn't start that say that this is a start. It refers to um, that Jesus is already in a state of being. Um, not a time-based start, as it were. Um, Jesus existed in basically an eternal state. Um, and those first three words should sound familiar. Lyle read them from Genesis, right? Genesis. But there's a major difference. Genesis 1 looks forward to the like, creation of people and things. But, but in John here, it looks backwards to the existence of God, the existence of God being all the time. In other words, Jesus is not from the beginning. Jesus is the beginning, right, if there were something like that. So, okay, so she's got the word was highlighted. Let me teach you a little Greek here, um, Greek verbs. Um, the Greek verb was is what we call the imperfect tense, the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense means an action um, from the past that continues into the present and into the future, so that's an action from the past that continues into the present and continues into the future. So then this phrase should read something like, in the beginning, like I said, it could be used a lot more words. In the beginning was the word, is the word, and always will be the word. Um, you know, so we say it, before there was a cosmos, there was a Christ. Before a cosmos, so it's not, it didn't start in Bethlehem, as John says here. So why does John say um, the word? Why do we say the word? And it's literally the Greek word for words. The Greek word logos means word. So why, do we, why does he say the word? Have you ever really thought about stuff like this? Why does John say in the beginning was the word? Well, now I ask you, and again, we, we get, get some abstract question, or answers here, but what is a word? What is a word? And I'm going to give it to you like this. I mean, stay with me now. It's, 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 a, it's an expression. It's a, almost a visible expression. In other words, um, you can see kind of what I'm thinking because of what I'm saying, right? So words become that expression. You can, use, you can understand what I'm, what I'm thinking because of the words that I'm using. And when we think about them, I realize that words aren't visible unless we write them down. Words that I'm speaking aren't visible, but we have to think about it like that. That's why God uses the word, word here, because Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. And that's not my words. That's Colossians 1.15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Right? Let's go back to John 1.1 again for a second and, and start bringing it back into Christmas here. Right? In beginning was the word. Remember how uh, we should use the word was in this verse. Right? It's imperfect tense. So what happened in the past is in the present is going to be continuing on in the future. Right? So, and it says here in the word was God. Right? So the word was God. So we could say the word um, was God, is God, and always will be God. That's why Jesus um, you know, he can say things like, uh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Um, he can say things like, I and the Father am, am one. Over and over, Jesus proved that he was God in the flesh. I mean, think about the miracles that he performed. And those, uh, John calls them signs as proof of who Jesus is, that he is God, Right? Um, and, you know, just off the top of my head, what did he do? He calmed the wind and the waves. He 
um, told the lame man to get up and walk. He gave eyesight to the blind. Oh, by the way, he raised a couple people from the dead, right? And so that's the word was God. Was, is, always will be. And the word, again, if we go to verse 14, we see that the word is, in fact, Jesus himself. So if we dig a little bit deeper, now, I really wanted to go through the first five verses, but I thought, you know, we got lunch and stuff, and there's a Packer game at some point today, isn't there? So we can't really do all five of this. So maybe a series or something will come up later. But I do want to look at verse 3, right? It says, through him all things were made. Now, this is talking about the word here. So John 1, verse 3. As talks about all these things uh, were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. You can also see Colossians 1.16 if you're keeping notes. That's the same kind of thing. Jesus was not a created being. Jesus was not a created being. If we, le- if we read uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we look at Jesus as a created being. You know, he begotten of the Father and born of the Virgin Mary, but Jesus already existed. In the beginning, Jesus already existed. Now he's here on earth. God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, standing here on earth. Verse 1 tells us that he was beyond creation. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus is behind all creation. However, in the ultimate plot twist of all time, the creator of the creation, I worked on this sentence, the creator of the creation became a creature in the creation. Say that five times fast. The creator of the creation became a creature in the creation, or created in the creation. In the old hymn, Down from Glory, say this with a straight face, man. Down from Glory, ever-living story, the great creator came, and Jesus is his name. Down from Glory. If we forget that fact about Christmas... We talked about it last night. Jesus literally said, I came down from heaven. John tells us that he existed before anything else ever existed. He's always been. So how do these verses tie in with Christmas time? Hopefully you're seeing this already. Like I said, John doesn't talk about a stable. He doesn't talk about shepherds. He doesn't talk about angels. doesn't mention the, the town of Bethlehem. That's looking at Christmas through the eyes of people. But when we start understanding what God is saying in these few verses, these first five verses of of John, John's gospel, we start to understand how powerful Christmas really is, how powerful Christmas morning really is. Like I said, there's just something about Christmas morning, how strong and how powerful that is in our lives. The gifts that God has given us, continues to give us, how his love for us makes us complete, how only God could give us the greatest gift of all. And that greatest gift of all was himself. Step down from glory. Right? The never-ending story. And our response, you know, our response to that shouldn't be saying things like, it's not Christmas unless, right? and then we fill in the blanks through the eyes of people. Our response to that, to the greatest gift of all time, should be some kind of gratitude. Some kind of gratitude. Remember that getting that gift in the mail from your aunt? Right? My aunt artist used to send me the best Christmas gifts ever. Man, she really put a lot of thought into it. And then I'd open that gift, and almost immediately my mom would remind me to send her a thank you card. Thank her for that. So this Christmas morning, 
This Christmas morning, here we are, as we open and unpack the greatest gifts ever, the greatest gift of all time, I want you to consider, I want you to consider this. I want you to consider giving, sending God a thank you card. You've just unwrapped the greatest gift of all time, and that's God himself. I want you to think about, consider sending God a thank you card. And I'm going to leave you with this. On that thank you card, what would you say on that thank you card? And the second part is, how are you going to deliver it? Would you please stand with me?